0: Welcome to Remember What's Next. This is a podcast where we try to make sense of our world by looking to our past. We are guided on this journey by senior lecturer, researcher, and historian Rabbi Ken Spiro and Ellie Bass from the JFI. Each week we look at a current event and ask how can knowing our history help us understand what is happening now. All right, let's look back and see what's next.
1: Ken, welcome back.
0: Hey Ellie, how you doing? I like those glasses.
1: Thanks. (laughs) If we're going to be on Zoom so much, we may as well have a little fun with it, right? Exactly. Um, Okay, so welcome back everyone. Um, We are going to uh, continue our sort of new exploration that we've been getting into um, around the different um, Jewish communities. It came out of a conversation that we had a couple of episodes ago. and looking at how the Jewish population migrated into uh, Europe, which eventually became the Ashkenazi community. And today we are going to look into one of Rabbi Ken Spiro's specialties, which is super exciting um, in terms of Russian Jewry and what the Russian Jewish community, where it came from, what it was like in um, uh, in more ancient times and what it looks like a little bit today um, and how that affects the Jewish world and how we know it. So. Um, okay, so, Ken, I'm going to assume that the digs are still closed. Is that no, right? No, no, I went
0: yesterday. What did you find?
1: Camp. Did you find anything cool?
0: Yeah, we found I found a, a uh, jar handle of a large amphora or pitoy, probably a meter and a half high jar, storage jar, ceramic, and it has a seal with a, a Greek inscription on it. That the, is the cool. jar is broke the miss i didn't get the jar but the handle is right there and it's uh, probably from second temple maccabean or herodian really cool i didn't even notice it really cool.
1: originally do you know what the inscription says was uh, it able, have able to wash integrated?
0: it i don't want you rubbing your, your temptation is to like you know, <laughs> rub it. right and the archaeologist goes like <laughs> going crazy on you but not just rub it on your shirt <laughs> you rub the thing off. No. So i could see the greek letters a few of them but wow. I, didn't, I didn't even notice original i just i just put it in the thing and the archaeologist comes over and goes whoa look i handled the inscription so even i missed that because usually i'm used to wow. looking at circular stamps you always look on the handles you find a lot of clay. you find a lot of these handles uh, that is and so cool. nothing so uh That's yeah amazing. so it was a lot of fun to be back in action because so i'm vaccinated cool. You can only go back if you're vaccinated. So. Oh, that's
1: that. how it works. That's the regulation. So, yeah,
0: they're opening everything up in Israel for those of for those people who are, are COVID positive. Wow. Not COVID Amazing. positive, vaccine, vaccine positive, both doses, and COVID negative. Yeah. So. Wow.
1: Wow. Okay. Well, you guys are going way faster than us, so you'll get yeah, there before yeah. we do. Um. All right.
0: We're, we're, so- we're, we're facing. We're phase four yeah. clinical tra- testing for the world, for Pfizer, yeah. is, is the state yeah, of Israel.
1: Really, true? We're, we're all watching you. But the bigger
0: news is it's snowing like crazy outside in Jerusalem. Get out. First, snow, first big snow in five years. We've had like, Sometimes you get big, we've had big snows occasionally, but yeah, it's unbelievable. Wow. City, you don't see it so much because it's stone and the snow, the snow tends to melt, but you go out with this grass or anything and... We're gonna get like uh, I don't know four or five inches of snow possibly, which would be huge.
1: Wow! Whole country so, panics
0: and shuts down. This is in Canada.
1: You know, it's a weird time when it's snowing in Texas and Jerusalem at the same time.
0: <laughs> exactly. The sky is <laughs> definitely in, on the way.
1: We are in end of days. <laughs> okay, so let's dig in. I'm so excited to learn this with you. I think. um you know, knowing your background and um, and how important I believe Russian Jewry to be to our understanding of the Jewish world today, and it being such a little spoken about topic, um, I think it's so. I'm so excited to learn a little bit more about it. So, where's where do you think the best places to begin? Like, um, should we start with how we got there, or should we start somewhere else?
0: I mean, we already sort of talked how we got there. You know, coming from Poland all the way back you know, a thousand years ago, Jews were starting to come to Eastern Europe and that picks up 13th century, 14th, 15th, 16th, the population, you know, shoots up when it was Poland-Lithuanian conglomerate state, that's when Jews were invited in. We, we talked about how uh, once you get to the 18th century with Peter the Great expanding Russia westward and gobbling up Poland and, you know, that the situation of Jews, we, you know, literally millions of Jews will find themselves suddenly in a different country. Oh, they never moved. Only that happens in Eastern right. Europe a lot. Right. And, uh, and we sort of got up to, you know, the by the late 19th century, you know, we we have about you know f- about 40 percent of the Jews in the world, at least, are living in, in what is the Russian Empire, like wow. over five million Jews. Wow. And then the assassination of Alexander II in 1881, and all the pogroms it unleashed, and how about half those Jews in the next 20 or so years will leave the country the majority are going to go to the united states that's kind of where we left off but that also kind of corresponds to 1882 to 1914 is the big the big uh, flight from the russian empire out to anywhere they could go you know some going to israel it also corresponds 1882 is the beginning of zionism right although definitely uh, the Golden and Medina of America was a much better option as a first world country, you know, that already millions of Jews were pouring into. Um, but it also corresponds to the, the, you know, the political upheaval going on in Russia, which led to the assassination, which caused the Jews to leave, doesn't end with the assassination of Alexander II. You know, Russia's, which was a feudal country, <coughs> sitting on a vast amount of land, an incredible amount of, of raw materials and wealth, but never really the, you know, the aristocracy, especially the czar, you know, inbred family with had a lot of genetic problems, you know, Alexei, who would have been the next czar of Russia, had he not been murdered in the Russian Revolution, was a hemophiliac, because that was in the family. Yeah, yeah, that's one of the reasons why uh, Gregory Rasputin, this wacko priest, (laughs) was, he was out, of, out of control like, wow. like um, a, a, a really interesting flamboyant character filthy wow. but incredibly licentious you know all the russian women were fascinated with this smelly he must have exuded such animal magnetism he, everyone should read about gregory rasputin
1: wow. but, uh,
0: he was he had the ability somehow to when the when when the zarevich Alexei was having these internal bleeding fits he could like soothe him and calm him down. So he kind of weaseled his way into uh, Alexandria, the the, the Tsar, you know, the Tsar's wife's good graces. Much of the disgust of a lot of the nobility of Russia and, and only added to all of the, the really bad feelings they had towards the Tsar being out of touch. And you know, we talked about World War I being the final straw that broke the camel's back for Russia because Russia losing so badly against the Germans in the war mm-hmm. um, was the final straw that really triggers the revolution. You know, Lenin comes back, who was in exile in Paris. Uh, revolution breaks out. It's gonna trigger a civil war that's gonna last from 1917 to 1922, if I'm, if I'm correct. Um, with all of these foreign armies pouring in to support the white, the, the pro-Zarist regime during the mm-hmm. civil war in, in the hopes of keeping Russia in the war. While um, while uh, the the communists were promising to pull Russia out, we're just dying by the tens of thousands on you know for nothing. It's the war was a disaster for them, and we know what happens at the end. Thanks to you know Leon Trotsky, the Jew, the 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 uh, loyalists, is the you know the czarist loyalists are beaten, and the and Russia's you know the communist the communist Russia is born, the Soviet and- Union.
1: How, where is the, like, what does the Jewish community look like at that time? Are we part of the cities? Are we in small, like, enclaves where we just live in our own sort of secluded towns? What does, like, what would a Jewish life look like at that time?
0: Yeah, so the majority of Jews, because Catherine the Great in the 18th century set up the pale of Jewish settlement, creating this gigantic ghetto, so to speak, of, which is basically the Ukraine, White Russia, but you know, over three hundred thousand square miles of Jews were not like Jews were not allowed to live in places like Moscow without special permission. So mostly they are living in outside of Russia itself, in, in those parts of what was the Russian Empire that are today independent countries. Is and that where "beyond
1: of, the pale" comes from? Is that where the expression comes from?
0: That's interesting. I don't. Thanks, that's interesting. I've never thought of that. I don't know. Wonder. that's I so interesting. Also, I don't know what was beyond the pale, it was Moscow. We uh, <laughs> <laughs> had a special position to live in. A huge number of Jews. Look, there's definitely Jews living in, in, in urban centers but a huge number of Jews mm-hmm. are living uh, rurally as, as by the way, the majority of the population of Russia was one of the communists were really into urbanizing things. They wanted people mm-hmm. to move to the cities. Um, yeah, so the majority of Jews are living in small communities, these shtetls, You shtetls, know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these shtetls. That uh, were either mixed communities, or or sometimes there's a few non Jews, sometimes they were split. There were cities that had significant populations. I said, like people, places, you know, like, you know, in Poland, which was one period of time was part of the Russian Empire, you know, places like Krakow and Warsaw. I'm getting ahead of myself, but by the time you get to World War II, these, these cities are one third Jewish. So there was this significant urbanized Jewish population, but a very big rural population, mostly poor middle class or, or worse or worse off. Um, but the revolution is, is very, revolution coming on the footsteps of the war. I remember World War I was not a real civilian war like World War II was where so many civilians were killed and deliberately killed in the case of the, you know, the Einsatzgruppen of the Nazis going through towns and villages mm. and mass murdering Jews. Uh, but the Russian Revolution and all the unrest that unleashed unleashed a massive amount of violence internally lawlessness and a lot of violence directed at Jews. They estimate that at least like 200,000 Jews were killed, murdered during the Russian revolution between 1917 and 1922. Majority in Ukraine by Ukrainian nationalists who were just using, using it as an excuse also to like break away. So it was very bad for the Jews. What and was the
1: excuse? Why, like at that point, why kill the Jews? What was the advantage? There must've been some bad. Jews were always
0: viewed by the Ukrainians since Melnitsky as being lackeys either lackeys of the, you know, the Polish government going back to the 17th century, but also being viewed, Jews were disproportionately involved in communism, you know, as a byproduct of the Russian Revolution, uh, as a, as a, you know, as a byproduct of, excuse me, the assassination of Alexander II, 1881, you know, and all the pogroms that unleashed, the Jews basically made, the, made you know, the intellectual, ideologically motivated Jews made one of two decisions, you know, if you can't, either to leave Russia, some of them just, that way some of them ideologically motivated wanted to go to israel feeling that the zionism was the answer and a lot of them were like if you can't if you can't join them beat them and jews are always revolutionaries. since the time of abraham revolutionaries you know we're always think outside the box people we're always going against the flow i mean jews have been literally for thousands of years, standing up to tyranny and standing up for ideas. And even with right. Jews without any Jewish knowledge are still going to be, you know, right. They're going to be passionate. And, and so J- Jews will flock to communism. Tremendous numbers of Jews will, will be involved in the Russian revolution. Most of the, a good percentage of the leadership of the Russian revolution, you know, I, people like Trotsky. Can we I ask you, like,
1: um, a theolo- like kind of like a philosophical, I guess, theological question about that? Like, you know, we talk a lot about the character of the Jewish people. And I remember hearing a quote, I think maybe it was Ralph Cook, but I don't remember exactly. I'd have to double check where he says, um, you know, Judaism starts in the myth- mystical and ends in the political. Sorry, religion. Religion starts in the mystical and always ends in the political. And I wonder if, you know, wherever, like Jews are always gonna be religious about something. And if it's not Judaism, like how you're describing their commitment to communism sounds religious to me. So in a way it's like, we'll just take that tendency towards being committed to a higher ideal, and if it's not going to be to God, it's going to be to something else. And and that's always going to get us into like, a we'll just fight about whatever it is we're religious about, whether it's yeah. actually God or something else. Do you, do you think that rings true for?
0: 100%. Because Judaism isn't a religion in a traditional sense, which is something that is like relegated to the spiritual sphere of our relationship with God. Judaism has a huge number of, has a vision for humanity, a God who acts in history, a destination for humanity, commandments between you and your fellow human being, so it's much more than that. It's a people with a mission, with a destiny, so to speak, which is sort of uh, uh, hardwired into the Jewish individual and collective personality, which is always there. I, I have a whole presentation I do talking about this. I know, I know we did the talk on Driven on the Jewish personality, but it's a really interesting topic that even a Jew completely devoid of any Jewish education can't but always be involved in trying to fix the world, which is why today when you have you know, a tremendous number of Jews who are no affiliation or Very, very minimally affiliated to Judaism. Yet, when they do the Pew Research study, the last one done a few years ago, the number one point of Jewish identity was commitment to social justice. Mm. Meaning, when you say the word Jew to Jews, and obviously religious Jews would not say that, social justice is a component of it, but it's much more complex than that, right? Nuanced, but for the average. A Jew, who is the majority of them who are liberal because that's sort of the worldview they think goes with Judaism, not to get into that discussion now, social justice becomes the, their expression of Judaism. Mm-hmm. So you can say the same thing about Jews in Russia. It comes out of our own experience, like we were slaves in Egypt or we were oppressed by the Tsarist Russian government, but we Jews are always for every ism but Judaism and always giving up their money and their time and even their lives for every cause in the world to help everyone else, often at their own expense. Right materially and even physically because Jews are such idealistic people. So Jews in Russia is exactly that. You have almost half the Jews in the world, you know, stuck in this place, wow. being treated like garbage. And they realize this is an opportunity. You know, you know, communism and socialism, communism is found created by a Jew. You know, when Jews leave God behind, they're still going to create a form of government that's going to be top down, which is what progressive communist politics is about. Big government will take care of you from cradle to grave. Socialism. These are Jewish right. ideas. Because right. Government's gonna do the job that God didn't do or whatever we felt God should have done. So it's not just Jews will flock That's to it, they it. will actually create it and, 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 and migrate towards it. And, and you know, people like Trotsky again will save the revolution from organizing the Red Army and Zinoviev and, 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 and Kamenev; These are guys are huge close confidants of, of Lenin without whom the revolution probably wouldn't have happened. Hmm. Um, you know, once Stalin of course comes to power, he's gonna have all the them murdered. Kamenov and Zinoviev actually pled guilty even though they're innocent on condition they not be executed and it's the, and the night after they pled guilty they were taken out secretly and shot. Trotsky What are
1: what are the years of that just so we have a timeline?
0: that's in the 1930s. I don't know the exact years. It's all the 1930s. All the stuff is taking place in the wow. 1930s when, when Stalin is, 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 in, is, is in power. And Trotsky how many Jews up. were murdered at
1: that point in, in that time? Well,
0: I mean, we're, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves because I want to actually back up and talk okay, about so let's back you know, what up. happens. Back up there. When, when Lenin comes out very strongly against, um, against anti-Semitism. He He viewed anti-Semitism somewhat correctly as a scapegoat for the, you know, you know, Jews are always scapegoated. Tsarist Russian governments corrupt, blame Jews, go kill Jews, beat up Jews, treat them badly, just you know, it's you know bait and switch. You know, they go for them and ignore us, kind right. of thing. Right. So he was correct about that. And he came out and he actually there was there was very severe penalties. You know, the, the, the derogatory term for a Jew in Russian is jid, which is like kike. And in under Lenin, if you use that term against a Jew, you got a year in prison which is funny because when I was in Russia, they used it all the time still. It's back in fashion all over the place still. It never really went out of use. But Lenin, in theory, was very against anti-Semitism. He, by the way, was very against, he wasn't into Zionism, which he viewed as, you know, communism as an international proletariat. Jews were very much involved in the Bund, the Bund was a Jewish labor movement and he viewed having sub-labour movements, workers of the world unite. Remember, that's that's Marx, another nice Jewish boy. Right. You have nothing to lose but your chains. So the, the it's the communist, you know, their song is the international. It was considered an international workers unit that transcends uh borders. And, and, and faith or anything like that. So the, the, the communist regime of the Soviet Union was very against the Jews having a separate identity. They were very not into Zionism. They will actually create, they were not against ethnicity. That was interesting. They, didn't just, they didn't, just didn't want it expressed as a separate form of nationalism.
1: Huh. So a little
0: obscure fact is in the, in, the, in the beginning of this period of time after the Russian revolution, they will set up as far east as you can go in Russia without like ending up in the Pacific an autonomous Jewish oblast, it was called the region, called Bidibijan. They would not allow Hebrew. Hebrew was a banned language, but Yiddish was okay. Because Yiddish was like international, but Hebrew was for like the Zionists. And this was supposed to be uh, a Jewish autonomous republic in the Soviet Union. And it still exists, I believe, in theory. I don't think it never reached a, the official language was Yiddish. And some Jews did move out there. It never reached a period of point of, it was in the middle of nowhere, but never reached a period of time when Jews were the majority of the population, but they were okay. If you want to have a Jewish ethnicity because the Soviet Union contained an incredible number of ethnicities. Right. And you have Asians, and you have these Muslims and Asians and, 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 you know, and Eastern European, you name it, they're there. It's an incredibly diverse place and a huge piece of land. Wow. Um, so they would allow Jews that, but they didn't want the Bund, they didn't want a separate Jewish Union, they didn't want Zionism, none of that stuff. Um, and, so uh, interesting and so the, and the you could bunds- be like
1: kind of ethnic ethnically slash culturally jewish but not yeah. religiously not really theologically right. jewish that's fascinating
0: yeah yeah and 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 they actually went they actually went um after judaism immediately after the revolution banning they, they basically shut down it wasn't just judaism by the way organized religion was very very much not in uh in, in, in the late 1920s, they started officially going after religion and Judaism, especially. You know, rabbis were thrown out of their jobs, Jewish communal property was confiscated, synagogues were closed down. They did the same things to churches. Also, they allowed a couple of monasteries to function. When I was a student in, mosque, in the Soviet Union, you know, almost four, 40 years ago, uh, I got to, I visited one, the mm. only open like monastery. Uh, but but they basically went after Judaism. As a, as a as a religion, because they were against all religions, as the opiate of the masses, they went after Hebrew. They outlawed things like it was illegal to have Shabbat. They went after this stuff. Wow! They literally, they, and and so Jews were faced with sounds
1: very Greek in pattern.
0: Yeah, it's like what's like the term is like a shmad, but it wasn't. It what to be fair, it wasn't the it wasn't directed explicitly and only at Jews. They went after all religion, like the Chinese mm-hmm. are doing today. With their very large Muslim minorities and things like that, and Christians, they go after right. the communist Chinese. They're hardcore. Your religion has to be the party. They don't want anything interfering with your loyalty.
1: Hmm.
0: So, um, so that proves to be incredibly destructive for Jews because you know one of the patterns we see I mean, when we look at uh, Jewish history, you know, what keeps Jews Jewish is Jews keeping Judaism. And the people who really want to end the Jewish people understand that the best way to end the Jewish people. Is to cut them off from their Judaism. If you do it by force, then Jews push back. The smart way is just to love them to death, so they assimilate. Right. Right. That works actually much better. But yeah, most of give them, it the up haters of us, thankfully, the, the haters of us aren't patient enough and nice enough to do that. They want a, They want to. They want a quick response. So they're going to come after us directly. You know. But uh, so you have a unique situation in Russia where you're going to have um, Jews who are going to experience. And even though, by the way, you know Lenin puts a lid. Legally on anti Semitism, but it never goes away. And Eastern Europe, which is actually very religious and has a long history of deep superstitious, the more religious these countries are, the worse they are, usually to us,
1: mm-hmm.
0: long history of very deep superstitious Jew hate. Um, you're going to have Jews who are going to be subjected to, if not open anti Semitism, constant low level anti Semitism discrimination, mm-hmm. but at the same time, robbed of your Judaism which is really doubly bad because it's one thing to be hated as a Jew and be a proud, educated Jew and you know why they're hating me. It's another right. thing to be completely, you know, cut off from your Jewish roots. And right. Which is going to lead by the way. Some
1: to... What are some of the specific, um, you know, libels against the Jews in, the, in that Russian time? What were some of the things that were, the myths that were propagated?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, you have the classic Christian accusations against Jews, you know, Christ killers and just being different and weird. But they're going to morph into the more modern, you know, you see with modern anti Semitism is focused much more. Medieval anti Semitism is the Jew is a threat because he's in league with the devil, he poisoned wells, he kidnaps your children, used their blood to bake matzah, and look, he even killed God's son. It, it morphs into Jews having an inordinate amount of control and power, Jews being behind the bourgeoisie capitalists you know, who are influencing the world, you know, Hitler was accusing, you know, after when he wrote Mein Kampf, he said the Jewish bankers led, you know, drove the world into the war. So you're gonna have that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. uh, all in a very toxic, in a toxic mix, and these and Jews are weird. Jews are different. And remember, what, you know, you, you remember. I, I think I mentioned this last time when I was in Moscow with my with my Jewish or part Jewish. Some of them weren't even Halakhli Jewish friends. The only people would hang out with us when I was a student in Moscow because it was dangerous to be seen with foreigners. You get you get big trouble. But oh. the Jews already were in so much trouble they didn't care. <laughs> so so. But they'd walk down the street and go, he's Jewish, these Jewish Russians really look different. The Slavs look really different. It's not, you know, you don't see this in America and Canada where everyone's a mushmash. There's so many mixes of people, you know, okay, Chinese people stand out, Black people stand out, sort of, but um, but uh, it, Jews really stood out. Even they look differently, different culture. You know, this, the amount of drinking, you know, Jews were never to the big drinking thing. It was just such a contrast. So anywhere you stand out as a a clear minority living amongst, and it wasn't like we're living in an autonomous republic, like, you know, Kyrgyzstan or Tajikistan, and when everyone there looks like you, we're a minority in the Russian empire, but we're a majority in our own geographic piece of real estate. Here we're mixed in with the population. So all of that kind of comes together in this mix of these Jews are international capitalists, conspirators. And when Lenin is gone and Stalin takes over, I mean, he was vying with Trotsky, and Trotsky lost and fled. And then Lenin, Stalin has Trotsky killed in Mexico City in 1941. He has an ice pick; an assassin put an ice pick in the back of his head. Um, Stalin, who was a absolute evil, megalomaniac, control (laughs) freak of a guy, he really because and a lot, a, a lot of it had to do with Jews being in tremendous positions of power in the in the in Communist Party, Stalin. We know purges. Uh, he goes to a series of purges where he, he estimates 25 million of his own citizens may have died during wow. these purges. Wow! Either executed or just going to these, you know, these camps and dying there, and never coming home. I mean, he was a, he was a, he he killed far more people than Hitler killed. The only person who bested him was Mao Zedong, who, who killed at least twice as many as that people right. in the Cultural Revolution. Um, where
1: where where's the rest of the world at this time like it's very hard to imagine you know when we think today and everybody knows about the atrocities that are going on in different parts of the world and are always either intervening or saying we should intervene in some way like at that time like how were jews viewed in the world at large and did anybody really care that the jews were being you know slaughtered like this? And like, what did that mean for the rest of the world? It's hard to imagine it. That's what I'm saying from the paradigm that we're in now, if this was going on in another part of the world, you know, people would care. you hope, although truthfully, like, you know, if we look at Syria now, I'm not sure how much people would care. But you would think if that was going on in Russia, did the rest of the world care at all? Was anybody saying anything about it? Or was Russia really just left to its own devices to kill
0: whoever they wanted? Yeah. Um... Interesting just a bunch of things are like people caring is one thing I call, you know, virtue signaling is a huge right. thing. A lot of people, I care, but they don't actually do anything. That's right. number one. Right. Um, and number two is, you know, this is before, you know, this is before the Internet, and you know, you had your sources of news were far more limited. You didn't have videos coming out on YouTube and one picture is worth a thousand words. There was definitely pushback against some of the anti-Jewish violence during the Russian Revolution. From but, where? Yeah. Who, who is pushing back? Yeah, from the Western world, there was definitely, they're paying right. lip service to it, but no one really doing anything. But you have to appreciate that there was also a lot of anti-Semitism right. around the world. America was rife with low-level anti-Semitism at this period of time in the 30s and 40s up until the, the Holocaust kind of like knocked it out for decades. But there was a lot of anti-Semitism in the United States, yeah. you know, and I'm not talking about pro-Nazi support of the Bund. When there's a lot of German ethnic German Americans who supported Hitler. I'm just talking about okay. in general you know, those country clubs and hospitals and universities that quotas or wouldn't allow Jews in, you know, watch the the movie, gentlemen's agreement. I was
1: just gonna say that. Yeah, 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 gentlemen's agreement.
0: It was fascinating to watch that. Yeah, and and things like, you know, white suprematists like the Klan were very hardcore. It's funny, people think the Klan is all about blacks. That was one of their big beasts. They hated Catholics and they hated Jews also. You know, they had had their their likes and dislikes. So there there was, and plus, The world is in upheaval. This is between World War I and World War II There's a tremendous amount of political upheaval going in the world. Progressive political ideologies like fascism and Nazism are on the rise with a lot of support, by the way, in many countries in the West, including America. Uh, Communism is shaking up the world. People had much bigger fish to fry. So a combination of all those things didn't, really, you know, Russia was Russia and communism. And there was, there was really a big barrier. There wasn't, you know, know, Glasnost, they had later openness. It was really, they were hidden behind a wall there. You had very little access to, to what was going on. You know, you had John Reed, the guy who wrote the book 10 Days That Shook the World. You had a few people who were communist sympathizers who wrote about it and gave him a lot of good PR. But generally speaking, mm-hmm. no, it was it was happening in more or less in a, it, largely in a vacuum. Wow. Yeah. Um, it'll it, later it'll emerge as a much bigger issue after World War Two, after the Holocaust. I mean, you know, with I remember. You know, in the 60s, 70s, you have, you know, student struggle for Soviet Jewry. You had the 39s, a British organization of women who were involved in, in uh, you know, advocating for Soviet Jewry. Meyer Kahana, the JDL, was one of the most active people. He probably did more to bring attention to this. Hmm. The founder of the Jewish Defense League, who was himself killed in the 1990s by a radical Islamist shot in New York. He probably did more, he used to chain himself to the Russian consulate in New York, like with chains to mm-hmm. protest this but that's already fast forwarding post holocaust right when the world was a very different place when america and it was evil russian empire as a superpower post post uh, you know world war 2 and post holocaust and that's when the world had redefined itself as you know the communist communist versus western liberal democracy and capitalism but it's Jews went through a lot of sorry
1: Like between, like it's, it's, I'm starting to get a sense of numbers here. And of course, like we know, like people aren't numbers and we should always think of, you know, the lives, not the deaths, but between then Stalin and then pretty much right afterwards, the Holocaust, how many Jews in Europe did we lose between those two things, one after the other in Europe?
0: I mean Stalin. He, he I, I don't know how many. I mean Jews were. You know, we're talking about five million Jews, something like that, The population of the Soviet Union, maximum, having like, you know, before they all started leaving, about forty percent of the world's Jewish population was in that Soviet Union, which again was more than just Russia. Right. Um, how many people? I mean, he had a big, he had a huge population. The vast majority of people who died under Stalin were not Jewish. Okay.
1: Got um,
0: it. But, but uh, certainly many did. I mean. The, 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 the German army was stopped before it could get to Moscow and Lenin, you know, a lot of Jews, by the way, were able to flee, you know, when, 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 in, in 1939, when, when Germany invades Poland, uh, you know, Poland's divided into a general government in the middle of German puppet state and Stalin and the Molotov-Ribbentrop pact between the two foreign ministers of Germany and the Soviet Union will divide up the rest. Germany will keep the Western side of Poland and Russia will get the Eastern side. And a lot of Jews were able to flee into Russia proper, and were saved. Had not that happened, a lot more Jews would have died.
1: Wow.
0: Um, still, he got Hitler got his hands on over a million of them, and uh, Poland was the country that got the most devastated. With okay. you know three million Jews, more you know th- were killed in Poland, but several million were able to survive in the Soviet Union. And by the way, in World War II, a tremendous number of five hundred thousand uh, it's five hundred thousand Jewish soldiers fought in the Soviet Army in World War II. 200,000 were killed. There's over 100 Jewish generals in the Russian army. In Mount Herzl, there's a huge, the Arlington National Cemetery of Israel, there's a big monument to the 200,000 Jews who fought, who died fighting the Nazis. So all those issues were put on the side, you know, before the war, Stalin was purging and killing everyone, including most of the generals the army, which is why Hitler was so successful, because Stalin was so caught off guard that the Russian army was in such bad shape. Prior to the 1941 Operation Barbarossa, which was the biggest invasion in human history, when seven million Germans and all their allies will pour into Russia, overrunning Ukraine and white Russia and, and Estonia, left Lithuania will all fall very quickly. And, you know, um, by the way, in a lot of those places, the Jews, like in Lithuania, will be murdered by the local population before the Nazis even get there, being viewed as in league with these are countries that were occupied by Russian communists and viewed as the Jews or the communists, even though a lot of the Jews had nothing to do with, you know, they're just citizens of, you know, just really the, caught between and the a Republic. Rock and a Republic. So wow. again, they don't distinguish. They come after all of us. Right. So uh, a lot of Jews fought, a lot of Jews died. They put all the differences aside um, for the war to fight, you know, the great patriotic war, as they called it, to fight mm-hmm. off the Germans. And we know eventually it was really Russia that absorbed the brunt of German offense. It was Russia that shoot up and spit out the German army in Stalingrad, went on the offensive, and really Russia did it. I mean, not, not to yeah. denigrate the role of America in D-Day, but if you know your military history. But right after the war, again, Stalin goes back to doing what Stalin does, which is going after, you know, everyone, including the Jews, in wow. a, a little, a, a very unknown a uh, thing that took place between 1951 and 1953 was the doctors plot where stalin in, under the guise of trying to organize a massive purge of the communist party uh, he accused some doctors most of them jews of trying to poison him wow and these doctors these doctors were arrested they were tortured they were all innocent they were forced to confess um, and there was a plan, Stalin's plan, we now know theres a lot of evidence came out. I met the son of one of these doctors when I started the Ishitar Russian program, talking in like 1991. Wow, I met the son. He was an older guy, all right. This is his father, was one of the guys arrested. Um, we now know that Stalin's plan was to use this as an ex- a pretext to deport all the surviving Jews of the Soviet Union to camps out in, uh, out east to kill off all the Jewish leadership and then to murder all the remaining Jews.
1: And this is right after the Holocaust. This was
0: in 1951, 1953. The plan was by the mid 1950s to murder 2 million more Jews. Unbelievable. Now Stalin dies mysteriously. There's a lot of speculation that he may have been killed by the Politburo realized realize you can't do this. It's right. like, you know, we're pretty evil, but we got our red lines. You can't, you know, right. less than a decade after 6 million Jews is killed in Germany, go take out 2 million more of them. But even when Stalin was gone, and you know Khrushchev comes to power, and they go through the de-Stalinization, it's funny Stalin's all back and popular again in Russia because mm. Putin—they like strong leaders. But uh, the condition Trump of Jews—you really <laughs> know, initially when Israel's founded as a state, even though the communists didn't support nationalist movements, they supported Israel. They voted in 1948 mm. in that famous vote to partition Palestine. And, you know, Soviet Union voted to support it because they were, not because they liked Jews, they didn't, not because they liked Israel, they didn't, but because they knew that Israel was a social, basically socialist, the Labour Party, which probably won't even make it into the next election, literally ran the country pre-state and ran the country till 1977. Labor Federation, the Labor Federation, the Labor Party, their health fund, the core industries, the United United Kibbutz movement, it was one giant socialist entity that actually bankrupted itself. Um, But they were hoping, people like Ben-Gurion was a socialist, they were hoping that these guys would be socialists, they would be in the camp of the Soviet Union, and they would be able to minimize the influence of Western powers, specifically England in the Middle East and be able to expand their own influence, having Israel as an ally there. That didn't last. Once you get to the, you know, the Suez affair, when, when Israel invades in, 19, in 1956, the Suez Canal, whole interesting story, they switch over and from then on, it's going to be the Soviet Union backing the Arabs. But initially, but you fast forward to 1967, and Golda Meir went to visit Moscow, she went to Russia. Really, and there's a the famous picture of her standing outside the synagogue, Archipova Street, the only functioning synagogue allowed to be opened in Moscow, was Uletzal- on wow. Archipova Street, and she's just mobbed by Russian Jews. These are Jews who had now gone for half a century with no Judaism, denied their denied their identity, you know, denied their language, denied their pretty much their culture, and then they see. Jews from a Jewish state. It was like a right. They did not like this in Russia at all. The Soviet Union did not like this because these Jews, they're going to like going to get uppity again. They're not going to just disappear. They're going to get all their Jewish identities to be. And it was, it was reignited. And this is the beginning of the Soviet Jewry movement. Who was she going to see? Why was she in Moscow? She was in there on an official state visit. Like she, that's the the, early on you could do that stuff. Uh, She goes all over the world, as a matter of fact, all the mayor. she went to raise a lot of money she went to raise a ton of money for Ben-Gurion and probably saved Israel initially Ben-Gurion called for the last man in my cabinet her interesting character called in my hair but that is um, wild so what was what was Russian
1: Jewry then looking like at that point like and and you know knowing that we're going to kind of um quickly get up to sort of the end of our our time like so in the 1950s 60s 70s what was Russian Jewry looking like like you said it was sort of like there was no necessarily like Jewish ness about it. Um, so then what happened? Did that change? And what does it look like now? Because I, you know, the Russian Jews that I've met are quite still um, frightened by their experience as Jews in Russia still. So yes, where yes. where do we go with that?
0: So again, you had Jews who basically had no knowledge of Hebrew, no knowledge of their history, no knowledge of their religion. Mm -hmm. Very few Jews managed to preserve anything. There was almost no tolerated official Jewish function, like one synagogue with a rabbi who was like appointed by the KGB, you know, wow. when I used to go to the synagogue, when I was a student, there, I used to go to the synagogue and, and people are, it was very dangerous to even be seen there. The place was crawling with KGB, just being spotted there could cost you your job. But beginning in the sixties and through like 1970 or so, Jews start to apply to leave and go to Israel. I think 4,000 got out um and that number is is going to increase tremendously in the 70s you know you're going to have like 250,000 Jews are going to be allowed out by this period of time there's all kinds of international movements like you know S- you know student solidarity for the soviet jewry and these different movements and government and government pressure, especially for the United States, the Jackson-Vanik amendment, you know, <laughs> putting putting uh, conditions on trade with the Soviet Union contingent on easing up on the Jews and allowing immigration. So in that period of time, a quarter of a million Jews are gonna leave. But Jews are a teeny percentage of the population. They're like, point, they're, they're like 0.16% of the population of the Soviet right. Union, but they're like 12, 15% of the student body of universities, disproportionately mm-hmm. impactful as we always are. And these are these are people who got free education from the Soviet Union. They used to put this 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 uh, this um, they call the diploma tax. So people who wanted to leave this huge amount of money had to pay back the government. You want to go to Israel right. or leave? And by the way, a lot, at that period of time, a lot of them were going to America. The majority right. were going to America, not to Israel. Hmm. Um, you got to pay back this diploma tax, which is equivalent to sometimes as much as twenty. Uh, 20 salaries for you know, 20 years of work. It was like insane stuff. Wow. And there was all kind, you could lose your job. They would, I mean, when I was there as a student, I remember people would be, I met some of the famous, some of the famous refuseniks at the time. These are guys who were PhDs in science who lost, who were arrested for trying to leave under some pretext. That Even a totalitarian regime would have to find you guilty of some offense. So they would, they would throw you in, they would, they would have your employer, they'd make sure your employer, university, Moscow State University and the Department of Physics would fire you. They'd make sure that no one would rehire you. Then they would arrest you. Uh, this guy particular dissident got a job stoking a furnace in a building. He was, a, he was like a postdoctorate in physics and mathematics. He, he got a job stoking a furnace in a building as a janitor. They then, the KGB got him fired from that. Then they arrested him as a parasite for not working and sent them to a labor camp. So they would do that kind of stuff to you. And, and
1: then uh, could you get out at that point? Like once you were in that situation, was that it? You're just stuck there for the rest of your life as a Jew?
0: People waited, it depends. People, it called, they were called at atkaznik. I mean, I met, when I was there in 1981, I was there for six months, I met numerous people. I actually got quite friendly with a family Uh, the Katz family they kind of adopted us they lived about a 15-20 minute walking distance from our dormitory and I they were the people who they she was like my mother in Russia and Mm -hmm. we used to go there all the time he was a PhD in permafrost engineering which I said is not going to help you much if you go live in Israel it's building buildings on frozen tundra when the building you put heating system in the building the ground cracks and the building collapses there's a whole art of how do you build these buildings and she was also in a an engineer and something with fossil fuel, and when they applied to leave, uh, he was—I remember—he was, I remember he was uh, beaten up outside his apartment by KGB guys posing as thugs. It was supposedly a violent crime. They broke, they fractured his skull, broke multiple ribs. He was hospitalized for a long time. They almost killed, they almost beat him to death. He was a very nice, sweet guy. Um, the K- the KGB guy upstairs said, over oh, well, my dead body, never letting you guys out.
1: So they, they wouldn't waited. let them work in their fields, but they wouldn't let them leave and work for anybody else. I mean, so you're basically some people kept their
0: jobs, some kept their jobs, a lot lost their jobs, a lot suffered tremendous persecution, went to prison, um, and you waited, you waited up to you know they waited like ten years to finally get permission to leave. You know, once you get to, you know when you get to uh, Gorbachev and stuff, things really ease up. And then with 1991, the Soviet Union collapses and the gates flood open and a million, you know, like a million Jews or part or part Jews, not all, right. not all Jewish, but a unique, really weird phenomenon where people are. It's the only situation I know where Jews are faced with massive anti-Semitism and still intermarrying. Usually it's being loved to death that causes the intermarriage. Right. But right. here, because they were so robbed of any Jewish nourishment, Judaism was they knew they were Jewish, some of them didn't even know they were Jewish, but they said they were marrying out, but they're still being persecuted for being Jews, even though they didn't know anything about being Jewish. But they've a million of them will come to Israel. I remember they're coming at 40,000 a month in 1991, it was insane. Wow, the population of Israel jumped like 20% of Israel today is native Russian speaking, which proved very useful for me when I my Russian knowledge, but um. But the situation in Russia was extremely difficult. I remember you know, uh, the first Jewish things I did, it's the first Shabbat meal I ever went to was a secret Shabbat in this guy's apartment. We met these Jews at an international book fair and it's a whole story in and of itself. I could tell you stories for hours. And we went to, he was a baltuva, a secret baltuva Jew from Eliaw Esses, who was a guy who was a rabbi, the unofficial rabbi of Moscow, who never got proper smicha because there was no there's no rabbinic ordination in Russia,
1: right.
0: and he and you could never have books or anything. You couldn't even bring them in, and you were afraid to get caught with them. Wow! So you had to memorize everything you learned and teach it to other people, whether it was Hebrew or Judaism. So he claimed that he made like 500 families religious with no books. Wow! And and, and remember, this is one of his students, and we went to the house for Friday night. The parents, it was a, a two room apartment because in Russia you had like one son. And he lived in the living room which was his bedroom and you had a little kitchen and you had the, a bedroom for the parents the parents were hiding in the bedroom it was illegal to have a shabbat dinner um, i brought a bunch of jewish students with me they had no kosher food all these guys spoke hebrew i didn't know i didn't know any hebrew i, I, I learned so Hebrew from my bar mitzvah. i forgot it they're sitting there they're davening i don't know what i'm doing i have no idea what i'm doing I'm so, it's so embarrassing and i was going to israel after and wow. these guys were waiting some of them 10 years to go to israel. i'm going to israel in a few months and they were like So uh, they made kiddish. They had no kosher food, no kosher wine, no kosher meat. They made the guy made kiddish on a glass of water with three raisins floating in it They had cabbage and potatoes. That's what they ate. And this is what this is what you got, because the the uh, the only good side of all the persecution is when you, you know, human beings in general, when you deny them something, forbidden fruit is always the sweetest, but especially with Jews, you push Jews, they push back. So it created a tremendous desire amongst Jews to learn anything about Judaism. When I was in the Katz's house, one of my, my roommate was this guy, Jim Cohen from Harvard, who was not religious, but uh, compared to what I was back then, he knew a lot more than I did. He spoke Hebrew and yeah. he knew like hundreds yeah. of Israeli and Jewish songs. And we used to do these secret concerts. We'd go into the house and the house, the apartment would be filled, like a little apartment, would be filled with 40, 50 Russian Jews of all ages, boys, girls, men, women. And we just sing for them. I learned all these songs. And they just oh. wanted anything Jewish. Wow. You know? What a
1: contrast. So it was, from. you know, you all, this, all this stuff was
0: going on. And, and, and it was, and, and we were being followed all the time. And it was really, for those, you, have to, you have to have lived in a place like that to appreciate how dangerous yeah. some of these political ideologies are. Right. But how incredibly destructive it was for these Jews. Of course, once the, the floodgates open, most of them are going to leave. You know, right. Russia's, there's, I think, 150,000 Jews maybe left in Russia today. Most of them are old people who don't want to leave or businessmen who are doing really well. Right. Where, and and where does, you know,
1: of course, one of the most famous names associated with Russian Jewry is Natan Sharansky. So where does he fit into this timeline and this story? How do we know him and why
0: was his story important? So Sharansky uh, actually, he got involved with Alexander Sakharov, who was a big human rights activist in Russia, not Jewish. Um, he actually is not to in any way put Sharansky down, he's an amazing guy, but he pretty early on, I don't know which year it was, in the 70s, he met his wife Avital, who, uh, who, um, another woman who translated his book She used to live in the old city. She's a PhD in Russian. She taught at Hebrew Hmm. University. uh, uh, Professor Hoffman. Um, But they ended up, he was involved in the the human rights movement in Russia, but he ended up getting, they got married and he, she had to leave the country the next day. They never spent any time together married. And he ended up getting arrested very soon after that and being in prison. And he became much more famous only because uh, Avital it was absolutely tireless campaigning for him and running around wow. and, and like, and, and he just sat in prison playing chess in his head, by the way, right. he's a, a very smart human being, wow. but really, he is really, well, he kind of became the face of Soviet Jewry, but it had, I think, it really to be fair, I think it had more to do with her. So out there n- nonstop advocating for his freedom. I remember when he came to the wall, I went, I was here for a couple of different people. I remember when Yuli Edelstein wow. it was very big in the Likud party when he came to the wall when they let him out. These some of the people I'd met in Russia when they were still there. And then I met them, then I saw them coming to Israel and they came to the wall and it was like wow. the messiahs come, like 40,000, 50,000 people dancing. Shuransky to the Kotel. It was incredible to watch. But uh, there's a lot of people. Some of them were a lot less known and some of them, you know, Mendelevich, they, they, they hijacked a plane. They tried to hijack a plane from Leningrad to get to Israel. There was all kinds of things going on that people just didn't know about. But People were yeah. so desperate to get out. And in the end, look, as a big case made, Ellie, it's very interesting that the straw that broke the camel's back of the Soviet Union was the Mm -hmm. Soviet Jewish movement. These were the first people on a moral level to stand up to Russia and truly reveal how evil the Soviet Union was. And they, they, they made the first real cracks. And it was the cause that everyone rallied around. You know, we don't even think about this today. We don't think about Soviet Jewry and the persecution. But I was growing up, this was the thing to be involved in. Let my people go. And it and it was a great example of you know standing up to tyranny and oppression and then you can, and, and you can make a big difference and that could that was one of the one of the factors that played a role in, in, in you know collapsing the Soviet Union. And That's and, and fascinating
1: because hey, we're always spoken about as the you know the miners' canary. You know, like if they come yeah. after the Jews, you can guarantee they're going to eventually come after you also. Um, but in that case, I guess the, being the miners' canary actually let the rest of the world know the depth of the issues in that country that they would have ignored otherwise. So exactly. yeah, that's exactly. really interesting.
0: Yeah, so uh, I really, I, I regret not writing a book about all my experiences there. I mean, I only experienced this as a foreigner and they couldn't do limits to what they can do to me. But you know, the fact that I have to say on a personal level you know, I started to get a little interested in Judaism beforehand, but being in Russia, I was going to go to kibbutz after because I had to kill some time. I only went to the Soviet Union because I studied seven years Russian in high school and college, and by the time I left, I could read Tolstoy in Russian, but I couldn't ask for directions on a on a, on a street. Wow! Uh, you know, you got to live in a country if you want. I always say, you want to learn Spanish, you got to live in Florida. So, so I said, you couldn't go because it was a communist country. You can go to France today on a three month tourist visit and rent an apartment and hang out there as a tourist for three months and practice your French. You couldn't do that in Russia. You could go on like a one week you know, uh, tour and that would be your entire immersion. And, and they'd carefully monitor everything you did, walking people, making sure you didn't interact with the population. You don't, Like you wanna see this on steroids, you go to North Korea. North Korea makes right. Russia look like a walk in the park. I mean, that's right. crazy, crazy state control. Um, but so the only how did way you get it, in? How did you, So you the only way to it? do it was, was to go as a graduate student. So I got into grad school in business. I deferred for a year and I said, I'm going to go to the Institute. It was called Institute. Pushkin, the Pushkin Institute for Russian. It was part of the Moscow State University. It was a school to teach teachers to teach Russian language. It was a master's degree program. I had no desire to become a Russian teacher, but that's everyone there. No one in this program wanted to be a Russian teacher, but it was the right. way you could go and spend uh, you know, up to a half a year in the Soviet Union. And when I was there, I basically did not take classes seriously at all, cut a lot of them and spent all my time. Because again, the only people that you could, who could hang out with were, uh, the only people I really wanted to hang out with were Jews or you know, part Jews. You know, right. The irony of some of the part Jews is many of them were not halakhically Jewish because the father's Jewish and the mother wasn't. And in Russia, you had an identity card. And if you were part Jewish, it listed you as being Jewish. Yeah. And, but then you get to Israel, let's say, and then you're not Jewish. So I, it, psychologically, it's very difficult for them because they for suffer.
1: Sure. Oh, my gosh.
0: They weren't discriminated against in Israel, but they weren't considered halakhically Jewish, which is wow. problematic. Hmm. Even today in Israel, if a non-Jewish Russian soldier whose father's Jewish dies, God forbid, in combat, they have a special section of the cemetery because you don't bury non-Jews with Jews, which is a very uncomfortable thing because there's a person who...
1: Who gave their life
0: defending the Jewish state? It has nothing to do with thinking they're second-class citizens. It's purely halacha, and halacha doesn't take into consideration that kind of stuff. So you have a section of, of Mount wow. Herzl that has people. A lot of them have very Jewish-sounding names because their father is Jewish, but they're not halachically Jewish. So mm-hmm. these poor people, a lot of them went through a lot of trauma, even till today, where Israel absorbed a million of these people. A third of them are not halachically Jewish. Wow. But for the first time in the history of the state of Israel, we now have a very significant population of non-Jews who aren't Arabs living in the Jewish state. So it remains a bit of a problem. I don't believe it was handled that well by the, the government. I right. think a more welcoming attitude towards converting would have been useful, right. but it certainly is a much happier ending to the story than what was going on there. And I and went where, back-
1: You know, you mentioned that there's only about 150,000 Jews left in Russia at this point. Like what do those, what do those communities endure now in terms of being Jewish? Is it still the same level of persecution and no. how do they survive and function?
0: No, I mean, I, I haven't gone back to Russia in a long time now, very long time. I used to go, I was, you know, when the Iron Curtain fell apart and I was in Isha working, I, I became one of the guys who ran the Isha Russian program. Mm. So all my Russian, can, I was wondering, why did God have me learn Russian for seven years? You know, it became very useful. <laughs> and I went back and forth a lot and there was a huge explosion when the, when the Iron Curtain came down everyone was pouring and the Soviet Union fell apart. The, the sexiest thing to raise money for in the Jewish world was the Jews of the Soviet Union. We, I mean, we had, we had we were getting millions of dollars of funding to win, at one point we had over a dozen branches in the former Soviet Union, almost all, all of whom have closed down now because the Jews have all left, but there was such a thirst. It's like coming out of the desert and wanting to drink. By the way, not just for Jews, a huge explosion of interest in Christianity. The most religious part of Europe today is Eastern Europe. This was the Eastern Europe that was under communism who are traditionally very religious people Right. And having been denied for so many decades, their religion—they're very, very thirsty for it. So now they're jumping back into it. But we were doing so many programs, and we, these guys were amazing. I like Russians, also have any—you know—it's—they're it's very intellectuals. No such thing as light Russian literature. You know, they have war and peace, <laughs> the death of Ivan Ilyich, crime and punishment. It's all super heavy stuff. <laughs> yes. These are people who have a very tough life. So they're very tough. They're not old. Westerners are really weak. They're soft. They're really soft. These are people who would wait in line for four hours to get a grapefruit from Cuba.
1: Right. They have
0: tremendous patience. They had an incredible attention span. So we would do programs with these guys. Oh, I remember we, we, did a, we had hundreds of these students come. They would study all day long without nonstop. We'd fly a moil in and circumcise like, like, 20 20 guys at once, and they would all be dancing that night having been circumcised. (laughs) And then they would stay up till two in the morning discussing what they learned afterwards. And it was like unbelievable thirst for, it was like they were just drinking it in. So today now you have a lot of Jews, a lot of older Jews were more comfortable state. A lot of of, them left. A lot of them got involved because Jews saw tremendous opportunities and when Soviet Union collapsed and the central authorities that controlled everything opened up. The, 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 the natural materials and the economic opportunities were huge and many Jews, a lot. It's one of the few countries where the Jews really did run the banks and control a lot of the resources because we always think outside the box, move quick, above average smarts, you know, hmm. on their, on our, so Jews moved in really quickly and got involved. The, the, the ones who got, who overstepped it started to get involved in politics like Khodorovsky and then started to challenge people like Putin and ended up being in jail. But the ones who stayed in business and, and Putin himself, has had historically very good relations with Jews, even as a child. So he has, uh, he has, he has a, he doesn't have, he, he's not an anti-Semite that I know of, and he's been very good to the Jewish community and and this good working relationship. So Jewish community, look, there's still the same anti-Semitism. It's not residual from communism, it's residual from the collective psyche of Eastern orthodoxy and slavic right. culture and whatever has been embedded in there for centuries right. but um generally speaking there's plenty of religious freedom in russia nowadays there's kosher restaurants there's synagogues open there's rabbis there's outreach programs wow. there's still anti-semitism but it's not stayed down like it was under communism
1: wow so. that is um, i mean it's just unbelievable when you think again like i remember i remember you used to have this list of all the Um, societies that had tried to kill the Jews that are now gone and were still there. You know, even Russia could be on that, you know, communist Russia could be on that list. It is there.
0: It's on my list. It's on my list. It's one of the last... You know, you come after the Jews. It doesn't end. With, that's the bottom of the thing. It's civil the nation, civilizations, nations, and empires that have tried to destroy the Jewish people and their status today. And has ancient Egypt gone? Philistines gone? Assyrian, Babylonian, Persian, Greek, Roman empires gone gone gone, gone? 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 gone, Crusaders gone? Spanish Empire gone? Nazi Germany gone? Soviet Union gone? And it says Iran with three question marks. And the bottom. <laughs> it says the Jewish people, the smallest of nations, with a friend in the highest of places. So be nice. <laughs>
1: that so is uh, it's just incredible I mean the, I think that the Russian Jewish story is really the miracle of our generation it's it's quite yeah. something and
0: but, it, and but it's really... amazing but it's just and one final thought it's amazing how someone so small is so threatening that we were so threatening to the Soviet Union that they made us the target you know this the power of the Jewish people is not our physical power it's the power of a people with a small people with powerful ideas to transform the world right. and because we never shut up and we never shut down um, would love a t-shirt with your quote. Yes, you go to my website, <laughs> Alan, you can get these ready. Is your is that
1: <laughs> yeah, t-shirt on your me. website? I
0: have it, and Alan lives in Israel, he can get it from me. Oh my um, God, anyway. that's amazing. But no, right. but it's an incredible story because it wasn't like, okay, you mess with my chosen people, I'm gonna smack you. It's the power of the Jewish people to stand up to evil. And even when we're outnumbered, like by the greatest superpower in the world, along with America at the time, you know, incredibly powerful ideas that eternal truths that stand for principles that transcend borders and history can be very transformative and the fact that despite being robbed of our heritage the jewish people in, in the soviet union when were, we're not willing to sit back and just disappear but continue to fight for their what they believed was their rights you know it eventually look it created the cracks that brought the soviet union down and, wow. and, uh, it's it's an incredible story
1: incredible Wow. that I mean, thank you. That was such an awesome journey through that. You know, what was a lot of um, history, uh, but also to be able to hear it through your experience and your personal um, stories. I mean, the images of how beautiful it is that when we're really told that we're not allowed to practice Judaism, how much we value it in comparison to say what was going on in in North America at the time where people were trying to get away from it as much as possible. So it's really quite something. Um, So if anyone wants that t-shirt or any other uh, um, information, more resources on this, please go to uh, kenspiro.com and check out the website. Um, You can order the shirt and the list. And um, thank you, Ken, that was really incredible. Um, I think next week we might start-
0: What's that? We gotta do Pura.
1: Oh yeah. Okay. So next week we'll do Purim. Yeah. We'll talk about the history of that, uh, of that holiday that is coming up so soon that we're all going to end up doing on Zoom, weirdly enough. So we'll see what it looks like.
0: (laughs) Virtual L'Chaim's.
1: Here we go. We're in. Thank you very much. so much, everyone, for joining us. Thank you so much, Rabbi Spiro. And we will see everybody next week, God willing.
0: Take care, guys. Thanks, Ken. My pleasure. Take care, Les. Thanks for joining us on Remember, What's Next. If you would like to get more resources and information about Rabbi Ken Spiro, please check out his website at www.kenspiro.com. If you have a question or an idea for a topic, please email us at rememberwhatsnext at gmail.com.